0: Hello there, welcome back. I'm Pastor Lars Hammer from Lord of Grace Lutheran Church here in Marana, Arizona. Today we're going to do some more walking through, a little bit more commentary on the ELCA social statement on human sexuality that was approved in 2009. My previous two sessions were about the Bible, looking specifically more at biblical interpretation. Um, I felt the need to do that. encourage you to go back and take a look at those the one last week, I did have a technical problem, so there's a weird cut about five minutes in uh, where a cord had gotten disconnected. But anyways, uh, today we're going to start looking at the statement itself. And so I just wanted to give a little bit of background on this. I'm just a parish pastor in the ELCA. I don't speak for the whole denomination. and. What I say isn't the official interpretation of it. There isn't really an official interpretation, but just take it with a grain of salt that this is kind of my take on things. I'm gonna look at some excerpts. The whole statement is 40 some pages long, so I'm not gonna read through the whole thing. We'll just look at some excerpts. Today, in particular, we're gonna start out with a lot of the background stuff on it. We're not gonna get into the uh, hot button topics that everybody wants to jump through. And unfortunately, I think with this statement, what has been done is everybody skips the first 20-some pages that lay out the theological background for why we come to the conclusions we do, how we understand our theology, the Bible, how we look at this whole thing, and then we get to conclusions such as, um, can we have the blessing of same-sex relationships? And what everybody does is they skip over it, they go to the paragraph with that, and they say, see, this is what the ELCA says but they don't look at any of the stuff that comes before it. And I think that's really important. How you come to the decision matters. And if we can, it's a little bit about process, right? If we can all agree on the same process, then it's easier for all of us to agree on the conclusion of that process, on the decisions that it comes to. So that's what we're gonna do today. So I'm gonna shift over, and we're gonna show the social statement itself. Uh, It's kind of a weird split screen thing I'm doing here but um, this will allow it so that uh, you can see the statement uh, and see me. All right, here we go. Um, ELCA A Social Statement on Human Sexuality Gift and Trust. So it is not just uh, sexuality as you might think it is. Uh, The whole point is that we talk about grace, we talk about trust, we talk about some of those things. You can see here it was approved at the National Assembly in Minneapolis in 2009. Social statements in the ELCA require a two thirds vote. This received exactly the number needed to be approved. There had been some other statements before it, none a full social statement like this, but there had been other statements. Uh, a lot of them were couched in a lot of terminology of welcoming. And those statements came before, the, for example, in 2005 at the Orlando Assembly, there was one. It failed by a narrow margin. One of the things about these statements that is a frustration of mine, but I don't have a better solution, is that you always end up with a winner and a loser. That one side wins the vote and the other side loses, and one side claims victory and says progress, and the other side is licking their wounds and going once more we've been, you know, alienated. And that dynamic of having winners and losers is not a great way to build community, but on the other hand, there has to be a process for deciding these things and how do we do it. And when you make a change, some are going to like it and some won't. And um, can we make changes in a gracious way that do not say once we've made a change, all oh, you guys are horrible people, um, which has been one of the complaints, that once a social statement passes, everybody who voted against it is, is somehow declared anathema or something. And there are people who talk that way in those terms. This statement, I think, does go out of its way to try to honor those who have a traditional understanding of sexuality and marriage. It doesn't say everyone who disagrees with this is a bigot go to hell. Um, and so, contrary to what it says, uh, it does not require uh, churches to have gay pastors if they don't want, uh, but that's really more an issue for discipline. So at this particular assembly in 2009 two things were on the docket one was the social statement another was a recommendation for changing the policies for ordained pastors and interestingly enough the way our Constitution was set up in 1987 is changing the policy requires 51 percent changing the, making a social statement requires two-thirds uh, can we have pastors in same-sex relationships, uh, that was a policy decision. That's not actually determined by social statements. Social statements are teaching documents. They don't carry the authority in the ELCA that, say, a papal encyclical does in the Catholic Church. You know, For example, we have a social statement on abortion. There are pastors who disagree with that social statement. They are still considered perfectly good pastors if they disagree with the social statement. In the Catholic Church, if you disagree with the papal encyclical on abortion, *Humane Vitae, I'm a nerd, I know what it's called, um, it's called *Humane Vitae, it came out in the 60s, um, but I do remember, kind of as a side note, talking to a priest who is a member of the canon law society. So these guys take canon law seriously and I made an off-the-cuff line about *Humane Vitae and his response was exactly what mine is about the social statement. Everybody just reads that one line about birth control. They don't read any of the rest of it. They don't read all the other theology. I get it. Um, and uh, I, share, I share your pain on that. But because the Catholic Church has such a high sense of authority to their documents and they, have, they will enforce it with discipline, right? A priest who preaches pro-abortion, pro-choice, however you want to call it, can lose his job. I don't have that fear. There's not an authority. I don't have to sign a piece of paper that says, yes, I am in agreement with that. There is no committee that watches my online sermons and goes, you know, Lars, what you preached there on October 2nd disagreed with paragraph three of the environment statement. It doesn't work that way. Statements don't have that power. You are welcome to join an ELCA church and disagree with a statement. On the other hand, for us as a church, to take stances on things, we have to have some sort of unified statement, some sort of position, some sort of conclusion. Also, in terms of our advocacy organizations, uh, if they are going to go to the legislature and tell the elected representatives that we want a certain bill about, say, the environment, the way it is structured is the people in the advocacy organizations, they are bound by social statements so that they aren't just advocating for whatever they as individuals want. They can only lobby for what the National Assembly has approved and put in a document. So there's some accountability there, right? Um, and yes, that does mean that what is in the social statement will get lobbied, not what is against it. So if if you disagree with the social statement, you will see P- You know, people lobbying for the opposite. Um, But that's just kind of an introduction. These are intended to be teaching tools. They are intended to be guides uh, and they do inform us. And, you know, it's one of those things where I used to be a little bit more reticent about talking about social statements. And maybe it's just the political climate has changed, particularly since this one, because there was always lots of fallout. A lot of pastors, and I was in that, Uh, category for a long time, too. We just avoid talking about the social statements because we all had lots of members who we knew would really disagree with the social statements. Um, And, yeah, it can kind of affect your bottom line. And so sometimes, you know, we're human beings and we live in institutions and we, you know, second-guess things, uh, what we say, based on how it will impact. Uh, And so, but I found that since this particular social statement was passed, bit by bit, people who have really diametrically opposed positions to it have for the most part left the ELCA. Um, They're not as much a part of our our congregation. We lost a lot of people here at Lord of Grace, and this was before I came, because of this statement, uh, that they felt in particular that this statement violated the Bible, it went against the Bible, and the ELCA had just gone too far away from the Bible. I hope I've shown in the previous two videos that that isn't going against the Bible. There isn't a simple one thing the Bible says. That's not a simple answer. What they mean when they say it goes against the Bible is it goes against the traditional interpretation of the Bible that I'm comfortable with. Okay, fair enough. There are other churches that have other views. Uh, But as time has gone by and more and more of those people have left and gone on, I sort of feel like maybe it's really time for us to show, at least in my context, what we teach here because it is really different from what is largely a a lot of evangelicalism and fundamentalism around us. So that's just a little bit of a background. Here's the teaching document. Here's some excerpts on it. Let's get into it and look a little bit at some of the background. How do we come to the conclusions we come to so that when we get to the question of same-sex relationships in particular, which was the one everyone gets upset about, nobody seems to care what the ELCA says on sex trafficking. Of course, there is no pro-sex trafficking contingent to be angry about that, right? Um, But everybody kind of forgets everything else and they jump to that one section, right? So, We'll get to some of those next time, actually. But I want to look at the background because I think it does matter. So let's discuss this first. Um, All right, let's just jump right into it. The introduction. This is how the statement begins in its introduction. And um, I won't read every single word of this, uh, but it says, "...invited to answer the question, quote, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest?" Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And that's from Matthew twenty-two, thirty-six to 40. Christians respond to these commands in the confident hope that by god's grace alone we are set free to worship god and love our neighbor all right that, that, there's a lot more here uh, that that maybe you we wouldn't notice right away um, the question that it starts out is is admittedly a biblical authority question right the people who are writing this understand that that's the that's the ten dollar ten million dollar question what what does the bible say well we as lutherans don't take the view of the Bible that the evangelicals do on this issue. We don't go to the whole corpus of the Bible, look at every text having something to do with sexuality, and then try to compile what is the answer from that. Uh, Picking out the different contradictions or, you know, the deviations, coming up with an answer in that way, Um, and then sort of look at the whole thing like we're excavating. Um, We don't look at the Bible that way. That isn't our approach to it. We approach the Bible from a perspective of Jesus is at the center, and that goes back to Martin Luther. He had a phrase for it: "Was Christum typet," uh, what reflects Jesus, what shows Jesus. So, we look at the Bible and we look at Jesus, and Jesus is the lens, the filter, the uh, yardstick for how we judge the other verses because Jesus himself did that, right? All the law and all the prophets hang on, not whether it was revealed or not believed, revealed or culture or not culture, but love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your mind, and, and then he quotes a different command, love your neighbor as yourself. This statement is going to tr- go through on that grounds, that we are going to ask our questions and frame our questions based on how does this reflect love of God and love of neighbor? It's not an attempt at excavating an answer, right? So that we can then conclude the Bible says, because we know that it says many different things, but we will ask the question. And I think we can faithfully ask the question of is, for example, a rule requiring widows in the church to be on a registry and to be monitored to make sure they're not engaging in sexual activity after they, as widows, does that really include love of God and neighbor? When we look at a passage on, say, an unrelated topic on slavery, is, you know, when a book of, say, Jude tells slaves to obey their masters even when they're bad, is that really reflecting Jesus and love of God and love of neighbor? Um, no, it doesn't, right? So we look at it that way. So we are going to look at sexuality from how does it show love of God and love of neighbor? And that means that there are going to be certain things, certain practices that are not going to fall under that category. This social statement, let's get back to this. I'm going to quote again. This social statement addresses the question, how do we understand human sexuality within the context of Jesus' invitation to love God and love our neighbor? That's the question we're answering, right? It's not a, what does the Bible say? It kind of reminds me of, uh, like, alcohol usage in the Bible. There's another one, right? A lot of churches have a long history of of prohibition and temperance. And yet, the Bible, there is a lot of passages that talk about how great wine is. There are some that even say you should go and drink wine. Uh, So I saw someone online. He literally compiled every single verse, um, every verse against and every verse pro and counted them. And because there were more verses pro, he concluded that we could not prohibit it. Like that's what you did. That's your ethics, frequency of inscription. I think sometimes with sexuality, That's kind of what the evangelical worldview is trying to do. They're trying to excavate and then tally it all up so that they they can sort of say that we're not injecting any human subjectivity in here, right? That's the key thing. They want to avoid any appearance of human subjectivity. They want to make it look like... The laws about sexuality are revealed they're objective they're in writing they're not our choosing right it's not me as a church being a meanie saying that you can't have gay marriage it's it's just what the bible says it's out of my hands and um and of course that's a you know that lends it the air of objectivity and then lends them as a criticism against everyone else of saying, see, you're just not following the objective truth because you're injecting your own human subjectivity into this and letting people decide for themselves and sinful people will always decide to sin more if you give them the choice. Some will, certainly, right? But I would argue you've already Injected tons of subjectivity into coming to the conclusions that you have. And the truth is, in practice, everyone makes judgments uh, based on their own situations. And can we provide people with a framework for making good decisions about their sexuality? Can we provide people with good criteria for making good decisions about their sexuality um, on their own, rather than just trying to lay down laws that people can? as we know, try to get around, right? The the classic example of that, of that kind of uh, legalism is, you know, I, I'm i a Gen Xer. I remember going through college when Bill Clinton was president, you know, and I, er, everyone who ever remembers, you know, good old Bill Clinton remembers how he ended up doing that deposition and, you know, they asked him, did you have sexual relations? And then he goes, I did not have sexual relations. Well, does, oral count as sexual relations, um, he, being a good lawyer, was splitting that hair and saying, nope, that doesn't count, right? That oral sex isn't sex, so therefore it doesn't count. It's not, I did not have sexual relations. And then someone goes, wasn't well, that what it is? And that's when we get the classic, that's what is is. And you, you know, and we all kind of shook our heads and went, holy mackerel, dude. But that's the thing about lines and rules and hard, sort of drawing lines like this supposedly objectively is that a person who's really creative can find a way to lawyer their way around it and when you're trying to lawyer your way around the line when you're trying to find a way to skirt it that means you don't really agree with the the rule as it is and you're trying to break it without getting caught that's not the same thing as making a decision yourself that you've looked at and concluded based on ethic, based on your own understandings of ethics and morals and love of God and love of neighbor, right? Um, And so Christianity is full of endless hypocrisies of people who will be judgmental on one hand and promiscuous on the other. You know, I've personally, you know, heard of, and I'll try to keep this really vague, but, you know, individuals who will leave an ELCA church um, because, you know, gay marriage is so absolutely against the Bible, and then I find out through the grapevine that same individual is going to bars and hooking up with random strangers multiple times a week and bragging about it to all their friends. I'm like, oh, okay, so two men in marriage, abomination, bar hookups, great, well, come on, Picking and choosing, right? Picking and choosing. And the evangelical church she goes to, they're okay with that, right? They're okay with that. I'm like, wow, you know? Your judgment is so inconsistent. Maybe instead ask the question, do bar hookups demonstrate love of God and love of neighbor? Or is that just utilitarian using somebody? Is everybody just using people? We want to get away from using people, but that's our question. That's the question to go back to. How do we understand it within the context of loving God and loving neighbor? All right, let's keep going. Let's do some more here. Central to our vocation in relation to human sexuality is the building and protection of trust in relationships. As justified and forgiven sinners, our efforts to create trust are in response to God's faithful, trustworthy, relationship of love for the world in Christ. We are called, therefore, to be trustworthy in our human sexuality and to build social institutions and practices where trust and trustworthy relationships can thrive. Little bit of church ease here, vocation, that's your calling in life. Think of that as your calling in life, right? Um, And that all of us have a calling in our lives. Right? That God has a purpose for us. That even our bodies are to be used for God's purposes. Right? Your body is used for holy purposes. You know, so when Paul says your body is a temple, he doesn't, he isn't talking about some sort of weird purity culture thing. Um, In that context, he's talking about don't go hire prostitutes. But we look at this not as our our calling with our bodies, or temples, not from a purity aspect, but from the sense of using it in a way that is fruitful, that is productive, that is healthy, life-giving. Okay, that our, our vocation in relationship to that is to what? Build and protect trust. You can't do that with a bar hookup. You can't do that with your Tinder hookup or your, you know, party uh, at your club. Uh, you can't do that. That's not trust. That's not relationship so right off the bat we're already staking out a position that's going to seem conservative to some the whole insinuation that sexuality belongs in the context of long-term relationships uh what's the new word for it demisexual i think is what you call it i think we used to call it normal Uh, someone will say i'm a demisexual i can only i can only do it with people i'm in a long-term committed relationship with and i'm like wow that used to be considered Normal now it has a special word because the culture shifted so far <laughs> but that doesn't you know we're not we're not parsing here whether the certificate has been signed yet or not we're just saying that to begin with as a building block there should be protecting and trust and what does trust require It requires a certain amount of vulnerability it requires uh, long term right trust is about the future you know, is this person going to be there for me in the future? Are they going to do what they promised to do in the future, right? And because of sexuality, you are vulnerable um, and physically vulnerable, right? You can be exposed to STDs and such. Um, there, We are saying that those relationships need to be trusting relationships, ones where you know people are following their word to stay in it. And um, so yeah right off the bat it's not anyone anywhere anytime do whatever you want relativism right we've already cleared off a lot of stuff but we're trying to do it without being legalistic so i would say to anyone what do you say about doing bar hookups and i would say how does that build a relationship of protection and trust or is that not the ultimate example of just using someone um you know the ultimate sort of utilitarian exploitation right so we keep going as justified so this means we are this is Lutheran code right we're saved we are justified we're loved by God we didn't earn it we're made right in God's eyes because God chose to make us right in God's eyes so we are justified and forgiven we are forgiven we are loved our efforts to create trust are in response to God's faithful relationship so God is faithful to us loves us We are faithful to one another, love one another. There's a parallel. That's the idea, right? That we should build in one another a love and relationship in the way. And so the reason we do what we do or we don't do what we do is not because we have the carrot, right? Hold on. If you can hold hold it long enough and be celibate long enough, you'll get heaven. Or the, the stick. If you don't hold it, you burn in hell. How much of sexual morality for the ages has been about that right if you't if you can't hold it until you're married you're going to burn in hell that, that that's the motivation some sort of otherworldly fear instead of sitting down and talking to teenagers and saying honestly, you know do, would you rather have a relationship of trust and protection where somebody values you and, and Uh, is not using you and values you as a person and not as a piece of meat, wouldn't you rather have that than, you know, you up, right? Instead of making it legalistic, I mean, ask honestly what you want. Because if you ask that question, you may find that often, and and I couldn't give you a number or a percentage, but I'll bet that a lot of the time the whole reason we answer the you up thing because we're really looking deep down for that kind of love and validation that, we, that, that there's a part of us that really wants that kind of protection and that relationship, but we're settling for what we think is the best we can get right now, right? Um, you, that, when, when I say don't, so when I don't say don't settle, don't settle for somebody using you, right? So that's the basis, right? A relationship of trust. We're called to be trustworthy, in sexuality and in social institutions. So this is going to be another, this is another typical ELCA thing, where we don't just look at sexuality purely as an individual moral thing, but within the context of structures and institutions and systems, right? And those structures and institutions and systems can promote healthy sexuality and encourage bad. everything from family leave policies to marriage policies to tax policies to uh, imprisonment rates, right? There are neighborhoods where women outnumber men like four to one or five to one, right? Well, good luck trying to get the guy who's got five women for every guy to lock down and commit to a marriage. Why would he do that? Well, maybe if there weren't so many other guys Uh, in prison, the supply and demand would even itself out, and the women could be more demanding of marriage and say, look, dude, I'm not going to sleep without protection. I am not going to share you with all these other girls. You know, if you want to be with me, you got to decide to be with me and do it safely, or we're not doing it. But if she doesn't ha- feel like she has a lot of leverage to negotiate that, because it's really stacked, why is it stacked? Because the guy's are in prison. Why are they in prison? Because of mandatory sentences. So you end up with something that looks like a crime policy becoming something that affects the sexual marketplace, which then affects families. So w- we're not going to look at things purely in isolation. We are called to build things trustworthy. Every- that's sort of the goal with everything, to build trust. Okay, let's keep going. God's continuing creation is the next part. Now, that headline, that title probably doesn't catch your eyes too much unless you've been digging deep into the common evangelical argument that there is this thing in the Bible called the created order, that there is a temporal order and a created order. And the logic goes something like this, things, God gives some commands that are temporal. They're they're for a particular time and place. They deal with particular situations. Those are subject to changing, right? So if God gives a command about mixing wool and linen, which which is there actually, um, that's a temporal command. That That one is not eternal. That one is not forever and always. That one can be changed and updated and revised. But if there's a command about sexuality, the argument goes, those are eternal and cannot be changed. Why can those not be changed, but the other can't? Because because those are part of the created order. And what do they mean by that? They go back to Genesis one, right? God made Adam, God made Eve, one male, one female. That is the order that God created for all time. Now, you can look at Genesis one, there isn't anything that says, and God created Adam and Eve, And any deviation from that from that is an abomination, go to hell. It doesn't attempt at making Adam and Eve a permanent a permanent normative thing. It's more of a explanation. The story is more of an explanation. But that's what the argument goes. Creation is fixed, locked in, the rules are set, they're not ours to change, right? Creation is fixed. And so you either are deviating from the right way creation should be. Or you're sticking with it or, or you're sticking with it the right way it should be. This isn't an ongoing changing thing, which is so interesting because we all know that you spend ten minutes studying biology and you learn that everything changes all the time. Everything is always constantly changing and evolving and updating. And you read the Bible and it's always constantly changing and evolving. And yet this idea of a created order I think it's kind of an interpretive tool that justifies a traditional interpretation. Uh, and that also for ex- that also gives, for example, some leeway in saying, well, you know, when Gilead had all this tons of wives that he had in the Old Testament, um, that, that he, he's deviating from the created order. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. I've heard that one. Um, and so therefore, you know, because it's just telling what he did, but the creation story is how God intended it to be. Therefore, that one's prescriptive. It provides an interpretive tool to avoid the contradiction. It puts the different things in different categories. But we in the ELCA do not teach that creation is fixed and static and locked in forever and always, but that creation is ongoing and things can change. We don't do this flippantly or willy-nilly, but creation can continue. So before the paragraphs even started, they've already made a statement. We've already made a statement. One, we're not going to do biblical excavation and count up the verses. Two, we are not going to try to debate what the one and only way that fell magically from heaven is going to be. We are going to assume that a loving God... Right? justified by a loving God in a trusting relationship with that loving God that we can continue the work of creation that goes on and continues to build. All right, let's read some of this. Uh, give me a second here. All right. Christians believe that God is the creator of all that is and that this ongoing handiwork is good, good, and very good. Genesis 131, both narratives of God's creative activity in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. There are two creation stories. Um, We can do that in another Bible study, but read them. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 are two different stories that have been sandwiched together. Okay, we're acknowledging that already. Reveal God's goodness and desire for close relationship with human beings as integral to the ongoing handiwork of creation. So again, close relationship is a part of creation. In Genesis 1, this desire is expressed in humanity's creation, male and female, in the image of God. In Genesis 2, that close relationship is revealed as God scoops up and breathes life into Earth to form humankind. Um, The word Adam actually means Earth, and Eve means life. So the Genesis story is a little bit of a play on it. Um, It's life is made from earth. Uh, So they're people, but they're also representative of things. Um, So the social statement's kind of playing on that right here. Um, As a mark of personal confidence, the creator even entrusts to human beings the task of naming and tending the inhabitants of the good earth he so clearly loves. The tender love and goodness of God's creative activity includes sexuality and gendered bodies. Okay, see, this is all part of creation, but what we see as the part of creation that is important is the trust, the relationship, the ongoingness of it, Um, that that's the part that we see as part of the created part, not the insistence on so-called one man, one woman, right? So, again, they're laying out a different interpretation of Genesis 1. Let's keep going some more on this. Just as both creation narratives reveal how God intends a relationship of trust with humanity, so also the creation of male and female, Genesis 1, and the companionship of Adam and Eve, Genesis 2, reveal that human beings are created for trusting relationships with each other. In these narratives of God's creative activity, we understand from the beginning that love and trust are at the heart of God's relationship with human beings. We also understand that creation is God's ongoing activity and not yet complete. Not yet complete. Ongoing. Right? And so if it's ongoing, it can be changed. But change does not mean, right, that it's always going bad. A lot of this goes back to, uh, and I I know very few evangelicals could tell you that they went back to Aristotle, but Aristotle was the big one who said uh, that something that's perfect can't change, and Plato believed in that too, right? If something is perfect, then there can't be a second perfect or a different permutation on perfect. Um, And so what's perfect has to be sort of perfect and unchanging. But yet we live in a cha- world where everything's changing. Um, if you believe that God's word is perfect, this is how the argument goes, then it cannot change. It cannot be uh, a good word in one time and then a good word in a different time but different. right? Because that would imply a contradiction. If, it, you know, it, if it's allowed but then prohibited or vice versa, That is a change, and if it changes, that means it wasn't perfect in the first place. But if it is perfect, you don't change it. Are you seeking a faith with a God who is static, who is sort of Aristotle's form of the unmoved mover, as he called it, the one who moves things, but himself cannot be affected, you know, or like Plato, some mystical form that exists in its perfect thing. But, you know, you and I can't really see it. And I think a lot of that idea of those philosophers, even though the people who have never, people who believe in that way of thinking, most of them have not actually read that philosophy, but it doesn't matter. It got into the Western world, this idea that what is good cannot change. And so therefore, our understanding of sexuality cannot be a changeable, updatable thing. um, Because that would imply that it was wrong in the first place. And, uh, and of course, that isn't how life works, right? You know, one evolution after the next evolution isn't necessarily better, it's just better adapted, right? Um, you know, the current, a whale is not superior to a coastal wolf. If you look at the evolution of whales, it'll actually kind of blow your mind, but they started as like big wolves that ran along the uh, beaches and ate fish. And then they just kept getting farther and farther into the water, and millions of years later, they're whales. Um, But you can go to a museum. There's a museum in Paris. You can go, I think it's in Paris, you can go and see it. Um, They've got a a replica. They found the bones of one, and they built a recreation of a prehistoric whale, and it looks like a big wolf. Um, But it doesn't mean that the whale is superior to the wolf, or whatever they call that original version. It just means that it is better adapted you know, and so the giant whale can gobble up a million fish and um, and so that, but that's how life is, right? Life is about adaptation, it's not about a perfect and a deviation, it's about a constant journey towards good. Yes, we believe as Christians that a sort of perfect good will come one day in the end when God returns, but even that's been an interesting debate that I have and I do remember having it in college Um, I had a friend her she wrote this big paper and I said what's your what's your thesis on she goes heaven or paradise is boring that was her thesis because it can't change it's boring and I don't want to go there and I'm like well you know I'm like well okay Um, but the more I thought the more I think about what she said the more it kind of makes sense I mean you know if everything is absolutely static you'll die, you'll go insane in no time you know does the river not flow is there not a new vista to see um a new person to meet uh you know but that static view of creation well we do believe that at one point when jesus returns there will be a truly good creation um, but we don't believe uh in an absolute perfect creation and i think that's one of the things about the adam and eve story that can create a certain nostalgia too right the garden of eden was paradise but it doesn't mean that bad things didn't happen it meant they didn't know what bad was that's what you got to remember right adam and eve were still doing everything they weren't supposed to be doing they just didn't know it was wrong so it wasn't the, the the apple didn't make them sin the apple just made them know that they were sinning it made them responsible ignorance is bliss is essentially it right so god gave them this place and said all right there you go have be happy and have fun and just you know and as long as they could have just played and followed their instincts that would have been paradise it was the apple was about personal responsibility the fall was about gaining knowledge and responsibility it's sort of the burden right of when you're you know going from being a kid where you can just where, you know, your, your, your world is small and you just follow the orders to being an adult. Now you have to worry about how the bills get paid and things. Um, but again, that's a different view of creation, right? We're not looking at creation as perfection, which was blown, but we got to get as close to the perfection, a static perfection. Okay, let me finish that one. The biblical narratives also depict how people violate God's trust Turning away from God, Genesis 3. They want to be like God. They make excuses and apportion blame. They hide from God. They cover their nakedness. The full breakdown of relationship enters, complete with curses and exile, as depicted in the betrayal of brother against brother, Genesis 4. The relationship of trust with God and each other entailed in the image of god is broken people sin that is human beings resist their own god-given identity and destiny right so god creates a relationship of trust and we break it why we break it because we want to be like god you know we don't want to be dependent um not on god we want to be independent on ourselves right um and so it keeps going all right let's move on to some more of this uh all right nevertheless god remains faithful seeking out and inviting all into intimate relationship as sons and daughters the dignity of the human being rejects god's deep love and stands against all forms of violence discrimination and injustice right this isn't just about may i or may may i not we're talking we're we're talking about some bigger things violence discrimination injustice but God's love stands against that and the dignity of human beings because our dignity our God-given dignity should go against that Um, scripture reveals that God does not abandon what he loves neither should we right love isn't something abandoned it isn't contractual you know a lot of relationships of sort of I think a lot of relationships today are contractual you know, we may not say that, but deep down in our minds, what we're really thinking is, I'll be with you until I'm not happy anymore. I'll be with you until it doesn't serve my needs. I'll be with you until I'm no longer getting out of, it, out of this what I want to be getting out of this. And that attitude of going into it is almost like, kind of like the employer who, you know, I don't have loyalty to my employees. I hire you as long as you're useful to me, you know. I have a project. Say I'm building this new edition. I'll hire you to build the new edition, but I'm not going to keep you going once the edition's done. I'm done. You're no longer useful to me. Out you go, right? That's very utilitarian. If we go into relationships with the expectation that this person exists to serve certain functions for me and that this relationship will exist only as long as those conditions exist, including the I am happy one, which I know can get into gray area because I I get hesitant to want to say you should continue where you're miserable. But on the other hand, making me happy can be kind of a, I don't know. I, I, I can see it both be very justified and very abused. But the idea is that we're entering relationships not callously, frivolously, Um, and not conditionally. You know, we're not signing contracts. Relationships aren't really contracts, right? If a person gets sick and has cancer and can't perform for you in the bedroom, you shouldn't dump them. If you love them, you won't just dump them aside and say, eh, you're no longer useful to me, right? We We find that repulsive, right? We would find that to say you're a horrible human being. Would we do the same for other reasons? People shouldn't be used, right? All right, Um, and then I'll finish on this slide. We recognize, therefore, our need for God's law to order and preserve the world, expose our sins and to show us the depth of our capacity to turn away from God and neighbor. Okay, the law tells us we got flaws. I get it. And yet we are consoled and encouraged because even in the face of broken trust, God includes all of creation in the unfolding of the human community and the world. As human beings, here's the, here's the million-dollar line, we participate in creation's work that continues even now in fruitfulness and productivity. We participate in creation. We're a part of, we're a part of that. It's not just a static thing that we conform to. It's something we creatively participate in. It's, so our agency and our judgment and our subjectivity a place in all this. That's again part of the fear of, an. remember, part of the fear that always lurks behind the traditional stance is if you let people decide for themselves they'll decide horribly. People cannot be trusted to make good decisions for themselves. Anything that human subjectivity gets into or human judgment gets into will be ruined. So therefore, you cannot have the sinful human beings being a part of uh, continuing creation because then they would just soil the creation with the sin of their subjectivity. See where this is going from? Oh, what a heavy view! But I like that. I like the idea again that you know that we are a part of this. So it's what allows creativity, um, and so creativity is a godly thing. And I like to I like to try to bring it into worship in ways that I can. Um, I like to sort of have an environment where we say in our congregations that we can change things and we can update things, uh, that we don't uh, lock ourselves into, into a mythical golden age and then try to recreate it. All right, where are we at? Let's do another one here. We recognize, We recognize the complex and various situations people have relative to human sexuality. Being in relationships, being single, being a friend, living in a young or aging body, being male or female, being young or old, or having different sexual orientations and gender identities. In whatever the situation, all people are called to build trust in relationships and in the community. So there you go. Again, there's your litmus test. Is this relationships, um, are we building relationships of trust? that are beneficial for us in the community? Do you ask that, you know, ask that of the bar hookup. I'll use that as my, my easy one to go against, right? But is that building a relationship of trust in the community? I think we'd all say no, right? The way we live out these callings, of course, will be flawed and imperfect. As forgiven sinners, we recognize through faith that our imperfect lives are means by which God cares for and sustains creation. We can live both humbly and boldly knowing that our efforts are still infused with God's love and blessing for ourselves, our neighbors in the world. By the mercy of God in the midst of evil, betrayal, brokenness, loneliness, and loss, we dare to believe that opportunities do open, forgiveness is sought and tendered, good may be rescued, and trust may be restored. We can do good and we can make things better. That's a simple summary. But again, we are a part of making it better. So as we approach questions of sexuality, we understand that we are a part, we as people are a part of coming to those conclusions, of being a part of creating a more healthy environment for human sexuality, right? And trust can be restored. It can be restored when it's broken. It is not an eternal forever thing, right? If trust could never be restored, there could never be forgiveness, okay. Now we're going to jump, we're going to get a little bit more into the, I guess, the meat of it. We're going to get a little bit more closer. Sexuality especially involves the powers or capacities to form deep and lasting bonds, to give and receive pleasures, and to conceive and bear children. The bar hookup is about giving and receiving pleasure. Well, usually one person, usually it's a little bit one way, is my understanding. So people tell me, but there's no deep and lasting bonds, that's anathema to it, and there's no conceiving and bearing children, hopefully. So you're essentially, what you're doing is you're trying to do one out of the three, right? And I'm not a believer, nor does this statement say that every sexual relationship is only about making kids. That's not what we teach. But that is one part of the equation, right? And we need to recognize that. Um, And so sexuality has multiple facets. Um, Sexuality can be, the next paragraph, can be integral to the desire to commit oneself to life with another, to touch and be touched, to love and be loved. Such powers are complex and ambiguous. They can be used well or badly. They can bring astonishing joy and delight such powers can serve God and serve the neighbor. They also can hurt self or hurt the neighbor. Sexuality finds expression at the extreme ends of human experience, in love, care and security or lust, cold indifference and exploitation. Right? And what is the difference between lust, cold indifference and exploitation and the other th- and love and care? It's trust. It's longevity. And because, again, you know, there isn't really trust. Um, You know, it's sort of a temporary agreement to use each other. But sometimes, you know, we play games with each other. And, you know, it's a temporary agreement, but maybe you're hoping it'll be more. You know, I would never advise that. Um, But people do that, of course. Sexuality, next paragraph, consists of a rich and diverse combination of relational, emotional, and physical interactions and possibilities. So we're, we're, we're not trying to be limit, overly limited here. We want to you know, understand it in all its, the fullness of sexuality. We're not just looking at, again, act by act, may or, or may I not. It truly does not consist solely of erotic desire. Erotic desire in the narrow sense is only one component of the relational bonds that humans crave as sexual beings. Although not all relationships are sexual at some level, most sexual relationships are about companionship. Although some people may remain single either intentionally or unintentionally, all people need and delight in companionship and all are vulnerable to loneliness." So, we are admitting that there is complexity to it. We are admitting that there are multiple factors involved in this. Um, We are not saying erotic love is bad or evil. Or even that desire is evil but it's the desire separated from the relationship of trust that's where it starts getting into the boundary of that's where it starts getting into the area of exploitation right and we also acknowledge not all relationships are sexual Um, it does say it's interesting at some level most relationships are about companionship Um, relationships are and i think it would be always be good to you know, little self-analysis of one's motives. We aren't always good at analyzing our own motives, right? Particularly when it comes to desires. But to look at ourselves honestly and saying, am I really doing this because it's giving me lots of pleasure? Or am I doing this because I have some other unfilled need that I'm trying to meet? Would I really do this if I um, had other options? Would I be going to the bar uh, if I had the option of long-term relationships? Would I accept somebody uh, not using protection if I had options of a long-term relationship uh, of trust, right? These kind of questions come in, Uh, and I I think it is good to ask, you know, uh, because I think a lot of promiscuity is really, there's emotional needs being cloaked in the image of I'm expressing myself or just meeting my needs. When really, I think deep down often, and I, again, I can't give you a number of a percentage, but often there's un, other unfilled needs we're trying to meet. Validation, um, you know, uh, proving my prowess, on and on and on. Maybe I'm filling my loneliness. Maybe I'm hoping for something more. Uh, may, you know, Maybe I'm thinking this will make me feel more manly if I can have more hookups and more notches on the bed to tell my bros. All this kind of stuff, there's always motives involved in it, you know. I don't believe that every single person wants marriage. I think some people are okay kind of being single. Uh, but, you know, I think that's it's one thing to say, this is my decision that I've come to after thinking about it versus this is the best deal I can get because of my looks, social status, etc. Um, and uh, it always it always saddens me to see people accepting things they aren't, You know, situations, relationships uh, that are kind of exploitative because they don't feel like they can do better. Um, So, and this will be my last one, and we'll then we'll kind of wrap it up. Sexual love, the complex interplay of longing, erotic attraction, self-giving, and receiving denied by trust is a wondrous gift. The longing for connection, however, can also render human beings susceptible to pain, isolation, and harm. The desire for sexual love, therefore, does not by itself constitute a moral justification for sexual behavior. Giving and receiving love always involves mixed motives and limited understanding of individual and communal consequences. See, I actually got ahead of myself. That's re-saying exactly what I was saying, right? There's always mixed motives, and so that's part of why we say that the community does have a, a say in this, a voice, ideally not a controlling or oppressing voice, but it is good for us to take into account uh, others, and even other voices, and other wisdom, because we are not always good, <laughs> right? We are not always good at understanding our motives, and this is heading this particular paragraph it does go straight on against the sort of view that I see a lot in the secular world that says you know if it feels good do it don't deny yourself pleasure pursue what makes you happy you know um, and you know as long as it's consented it's good well we can consent to a lot of things that we don't really like and we can consent to things that don't make us happy and we can consent to things begrudgingly. Consenting to it isn't the same as wanting it. Consenting to it isn't the same as it gives me life and makes my life better. Right? We can consent to things because we feel like it's the best option at the time. And so simply, the, simply having the desire does not justify acting on the desire. We have to have more to it at play. You do not have a right, I guess you could say, to pursue every desire. Right. Just because you have it doesn't mean you have a right to fulfill it, that there's more involved uh, and that we have a right to have a discussion about mixed motives. All right. I'll finish this up here. The sharing of love and sexual intimacy within the mutuality of a mature and trusting relationship can be a source of romance, delight, creativity, imagination, restraint, desire, pleasure, safety and deep contentment that provides the context for individuals, family, and the community to thrive." So there is a place uh, within a relationship where sexuality is very much a life-giving thing, right? In many different ways, and we're not denying any of those, and we're not trying to rob you of any of those. But what we are trying to say is that in the context of a a long-committed relationship, you will have more trust, and ultimately, we believe there will be more. more pleasure, more contentment. Um, I think they did, they've sort of done studies on this that show that um, you know, there is a relationship between pleasure and long-term relationships. People always say you get tired and bored, uh, but most women report way more pleasure from their long-term partners than they do from their bar hookups, right? Because of course, the guy in the bar hookup's just in it for him, right? Um, and um, you're just essentially letting yourself being used for something else you don't, he doesn't know you, he doesn't know what you want, and there's certainly no emotional bond there that would make the physical act more than just a pure physical performance, right? So uh, we are not anti-sex, we are not anti-sexuality, we we are not, I'm going to move over here, uh, go middle. We're trying to set these limits, and I think, honestly, if you, if you did reflect on all those limits, it would be hard to justify a hookup culture. It would be hard to justify, you know, swinger clubs and whatever other stuff that's going on. It, those aren't things in the context of a relationship. This statement is not whatever you feel like is good. But the truth is, we do have to make these decisions for ourselves in the whatever particular situations we are in. Are we edu- giving people, again, good criteria to make that decision for themselves or not? Uh, we believe that as people, we always uphold the loving relationship as the ideal. Okay, so there we go. That's as far as I'm going to go today. That's oh well, wow, almost exactly an hour, and um, I'll pick up again next week. And we'll look at some more of this. Uh, Again, this is a lot of background. It's it's a lot of background, but I'm hoping that as we walk through the background, when we get to conclusions, it will make a lot more sense and be more easy to understand. So that you know uh, that the ELCA does not pick our social statements simply by personal preference and whichever personal preference has more votes. Uh, we like to think that what we're doing is laying out a better idea and a theology and that that's kind of what we're agreeing on rather than just my preference wins out over your preference because I could stock the assembly with more of my people than your people. Um, that's the most cynical way. That's hopefully not what it was. I don't think that's what it was. I think there was there was clearly political maneuvering going on in both sides at this assembly. Um and I think that's really unfortunate, and I think that's one of the downsides of it, uh, is that it became this high-stakes, winner-loser kind of dynamic. Uh, but uh, at, the, at the end of the day, as you can see, I don't think there's anything in here that even the most traditional uh, person would, would disagree with, minus the idea of an ongoing creation and a non-static universe. But so far, there's no you know, the ELCA has not endorsed moral relativism. It's not, it's not, you know, whatever gets you through the night is all right, it's all right, right? That's not, that's not, uh, that's not our theology, no matter what the critics say and uh, accuse me of. Um, and I don't know why they accuse me of this. I don't preach this at all, but, uh, you know, I'm ELCA, uh, and I think it's easier to just schlock the extreme title on of moral relativism rather than say, you're not relativistic, but you're not legalistic. There's a world, a whole world of view between hard lines and anything goes. So I hope this has been helpful. Again, hope you download the whole statement. I'm not gonna walk through every page. It's like 48 pages or something. Next week, we'll do some more excerpts on this. Uh, we'll see where it goes, um, how many weeks I need to spend on this. I got one more Wednesday class. You can still join me next Wednesday at 6.30 in person. Uh, where we can have more chance to discuss it. It is not recorded, so you can be as honest as you want about your concerns, and it will not go online. Uh, that's why I'm just doing this where I just yak into the camera, so that way people's own thoughts can, are kept confidential. Uh, so again, hope it's been helpful. Message me if you got any questions, and uh, I hope you all have a great week. God bless.